Do you want to know more about this year's hot real estate market? Coldwell Banker Realty's Alexandria office provides local experts with global connections to guide you home. Contact an expert today at www.coldwellbankerhomes.com. Hello, and welcome to the Alexandria Times podcast, Speakeasy. My name is Cody Mellicline. I'm the editor at The Times, and today I am joined by Joe Cerruti, the artistic director of the Alexandria Harmonizers, a nationally and internationally recognized acapella or barbershop chorus that is located right here in Alexandria. Welcome, Joe. How's it going? It's going great, Cody. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm sure most people who live or uh, work in Alexandria are familiar with the work that you guys have done as the harmonizers, but just in case, do you want to tell, tell people a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, we are um, a, a choral ensemble that's been in the, the Alexandria community for over 70 years. Uh, we're an all-male acapella choral ensemble, and we have a, about 100 or so members that, that sing in the chorus on a regular basis. Um, we are a chapter of the Barbershop Harmony Society, which is a national and international organization. Um, that is focused on the, the kinds of acapella harmonies that, that we've sung uh, for decades. And you know, over the, the time that we have uh, been a chorus, we have had a wealth of really, really cool experiences. Um, you know, we have had five guest appearances on uh, CBS's Kennedy Center Honors. We've entertained for the 70th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy, France. We uh, recently did two major world premieres with the National Philharmonic and were guest artists in 2019 for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland, which is the largest arts festival uh, in the world. Um, so we've done a bunch of different things. We were uh, we had a short feature on uh, America's Got Talent, and we've we've been very fortunate to have numerous performances at Carnegie Hall and the White House and the Supreme Court. Um, and, and collaborated with all sorts of really cool people like uh, um, uh, Broadway star Kristen Chenoweth and uh, the, uh, the Holocaust survivor and author Ellie Wiesel and jazz legend Harry Connick Jr. So uh, it, uh, it feels a little like I'm, I'm bragging and name dropping and I suppose I am a little bit, but I'm, I'm so proud of, of my chorus, but really being uh, an established ensemble here in the nation's capital. A lot of these opportunities just kind of come to us without much work, but we've been really fortunate to experience some of the coolest gigs possible, but there are so many other cool things that that we do to, to be an ensemble in the Alexandria area, but that's kind of who we are in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you guys have earned the right to, to name drop and to brag a little bit, clearly. <laughs> um, obviously, I mean, as, as you mentioned, you have a rich history. The organization has a rich history. Before we dive into a little bit of that, I want to talk about you uh, because obviously you are the focus of this episode itself. For you, how did you come to music? What, did you grow up in a musical household? Was that something that was kind of fostered in your house or, or did you sort of just kind of come to it as a passion yourself? You know, uh, my both of my parents enjoy singing. I wouldn't, there's certainly not professional singers. Sure. Uh, there's, there's no one uh, in my family that, that studied music 
professionally. So that was a, a relatively new venture for me. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, while, while music was, was always playing growing up, um, I would say that I was the first person in my family to really dig deep and pursue music. It was something that I knew I wanted to do very, very early on in life. Uh, as an elementary school kid, I was singing in the church choir, I was singing in the school choir, and it just went from there through high school. I was student conducting the ensembles and arranging and, and decided at that point that I wanted to go on and, and pursue music education. So uh, it was a balance of, do I want to perform? Do I want to you know, do, do musical theater? Do I want to do music education? And I decided at the end of the day that it, teaching would be a bit more steady than being a starving artist. And, and that was the, the direction that I took. So I, I went and got a degree in, in music education on Long Island and then uh, pursued conducting uh, a little bit further. I moved up to Boston and I studied conducting uh, at Boston University. And uh, then right from that experience, moved down to the Alexandria area to conduct the Alexandria Harmonizers. As you, as you mentioned, your interest in music is, is wide ranging. It's, it's performance, it's uh, musical theater, it's chorus, it's teaching, conducting. Is it an entirely different skill set involved with conducting than is performing? Is there some connection there? Do you feel like you have to be a good performer to make a good conductor? What's the connection there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. Uh, given my experience con having conducted the harmonizers and a number of, of other choral ensembles, I look back and if I could do it all over again, I would probably get a degree in, in human psychology. Okay. I think that I use that more than I use uh, a lot of the, the musical skills that I've been taught over the years. It's really, uh, it's so much more about leadership and interpersonal communication. And, you know, when you are leading a, a large group of people, it's incredibly difficult to get a large group of people moving in the same direction, agreeing on the same things, working together. So I think more than any sort of musical or performance attributes, uh, it would really be, uh, uh, you know, leadership traits. And, and, you know, I think the thing that fascinates me most, the more that I, continue as a conductor is is just the the psychological part of being a leader yeah and i'm sure that that's something that's totally necessary when you have a massive like 100 person chorus leadership i imagine it's at a different scale i would imagine in some ways for sure yeah it absolutely is yeah um when you were growing up and sort of considering moving into or pursuing music kind of, I guess, more seriously and more professionally was musical theater. It sounds like musical theater and chorus was the route you wanted to take. Did you ever fancy yourself becoming like a rock star, or a pop star, moving into kind of that area? Or was it always chorus, acapella, that kind of thing? It was a little more than chorus, acapella. You know, I was okay. very also... Uh, I love jazz music, um, yeah. love the great American songbook, jazz standards, those sorts of things. Um, to this day, if you played anything that would, that, that is on the radio in the last 10 years, I probably couldn't name the song <laughs> or the person who, who wrote it. I, I can appreciate it. I can listen to it and appreciate most of it. Yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, I am, am, 
kind of an old soul in that way that I can listen to music from the 40s and, and 50s and 60s so much more than than I can listen to anything that's that's being uh, recorded today. So I think that that's kind of where anything, you know, even classic rock, I, I love that. I don't really play it as much, but I certainly appreciate it a lot more. The, the thought and effort that goes into creating that music uh, uh, is really, really interesting. The, the harmonies, the variety, the contrast is, is something that I can really, really delve deeply into. In terms of acapella music itself, though, what for you was the appeal kind of initially as you sort of started to dive into that? And, and what is the appeal for you now as, as obviously as you've been the director of the harmonizers for all these years, what's the appeal of, of acapella music for yourself and do you th- and, and more generally speaking? I think that the interesting thing, you know, I, I love accompanied music. I mean, we, we, uh, the, the Alexandria harmonizers will, will often do things that are accompanied. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we did two world premieres with the National Philharmonic and, and very often on our shows, we will have, you know, a percussion ensemble or something like that to supplement. But the interesting thing I think about acapella is, you know, one of the terms we use in, in specifically barbershop, uh, the barbershop style of acapella singing is expanded sound. That if, when you sing a four part harmony and you sing it just smack dab perfectly in tune, what it creates, the physics of those sounds create overtones. And, and if there are four voices singing, you'll tend to hear five or six notes. So it's the, 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 the sum is greater than the parts, right? This, this feeling that even though there are four people singing, you can hear five, six, sometimes seven notes going on in those chords because of what you're creating together. And that's something that you don't get when you sing on your own, right? You don't get necessarily get, uh, I mean, overtones exist all over the place, but you don't hear them as predominantly as you do when you're, when you're singing acapella music. So I think that that is probably the number one thing that really drives me towards uh, my love of, of acapella music. Yeah, I, th- I mean, there's, there's so much science behind how people respond to the human voice human singing voice as opposed to kind of like other instruments. I think when you hear a guitarist or a a jazz saxophone player, a lot of what they're doing is actually, it sounds like they're trying to mimic the human voice with their instrument. What you guys are doing is just pure voice, which in a lot of ways that's, that's striking. I think just immediately for a lot of people. Yeah. the, The interesting thing, you know, is that the body is the instrument. So it's a different instrument every day based on how much sleep you've had, how much water you've had to drink, you know, so it's this very, very versatile instrument that can make all of these different sounds. Uh, But, but even that, that instrument, that body is a different body every day based on how you're taking care of it. So, you know, uh, the, you know, if you have something wrong with a guitar, you have something wrong with a piano, you can reach inside that piano, you can take the strings out, you can put in new strings, you yeah. can't reach down and mess around with a voice. So the voice is a very psychological instrument, especially when you're working with a group of people to try and get them to do something, you, you have to use a lot of imagery when, when you're, you're working with a choral ensemble, especially that's singing acapella music. What does that mean in terms of imagery? What kind of imagery are you conjuring for people? 
Man, you know, I mean, we, we talk all the time in the harmonizers about pitch and, and visualizing pitch and, and okay. imagine that you're lifting a pitch and putting it on the shelf. Um, imagining that if you revisit a pitch, so if you're singing a neighbor tone or coming back to a pitch, you want that pitch to feel and sound higher than it was the first time that you sang it, right? These are things that, that, that don't actually happen, but if we think like that in our head, we're going to get the sound that we want. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I know, so I know you first joined as the artistic director in 2007. That's right. Uh, what brought you, was it the harmonizers that brought you down here in the first place? It was, yeah. So the harmonizers, you know, I got involved in singing barbershop harmony uh, in college in my, my undergrad work on Long Island. Um, a professor at, at Five Towns College uh, came up to me and he said, you're going to sing barbershop. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, no way. <laughs> and, and because, you know, at the time I thought that barbershop was, was what most people think barbershop is, the stereotype of straw hats, striped vests. And, and the first time I actually heard what barbershop was, it's, which it's, a style of arranging any genre of music. There are barbershop arrangements of Queen and the Beatles and all sorts of more modern things than we would necessarily yeah. associate with barbershop harmony. So when I fell in love with barbershop harmony and went to my very first convention, my professor said, um, he, he said, I, I heard a group and I went, oh my God, they're great. And he said, no, 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 just wait, wait for it. And I saw another group and I, I thought, how can it get better than this? This is amazing. And he said, no, 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 just wait. And it finally got to the last group of the convention. And it must have taken them five minutes to load the risers. And they finally sang and my life was changed. And the ensemble that was performing was the Alexandria Harmonizers at that time. Little did I know that fast forward a number of years, I would be the artistic director of that group. So the harmonizers have a, a very, very storied uh, uh, reputation in the barbershop and acapella world for not only being a, an artistic force, but being an, an administrative and organizational force for a number of reasons. So when they were doing a director search in 2006, I, threw my name in the hat on a whim. Uh, a friend at the time said, hey, you should apply for this. And, and I went and did it thinking, there's no way they're going to go for a guy like me. I was 25 at the time. Oh, wow. And, and uh, lo and behold, they selected me. And, and honestly, at the time, it was a dream come true. And the journey that I've taken with them over the last 15 years or so has just been truly incredible. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility to take on at, at 25 years old. How was that onboarding for you? You as, as obviously they were the ones who inspired you to to kind of pursue this in the first place. So there's the honor of being able to lead them, as you mentioned, this organization that you held in such high esteem. But there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. There's a ton of pressure. You know, uh, the 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 chorus at the time. I was the oldest person in the room. Um, and it was very interesting. The harmonizers uh, are 
known for being a relatively large chorus, having 100 to 120 men on the risers. And when I took the chorus over at the time, the numbers were down to 50 or so. And, you know, it was a very, very delicate time in the history of, of the chorus. And looking back at that, it could have gone in any direction at the time. It could have easily been the demise of, of the harmonizers as we know it. But, you know, the, the situation that we found ourselves in was they were in need of, of artistic help. And I, as a 25 year old, just out of college was in need of, of the leadership that the, the harmonizers have been known for, for decades. So we kind of had an unspoken agreement of, I will help you artistically if you help me become a better leader. And they were very protective of me at the time and said, you do what you're good at and let us do what we're good at. And looking back, it was really a match made in heaven. And the chorus from that point grew from, from 53 guys at my very first uh, uh, competition convention with the chorus to now uh, we've been as big as 120 again. And right now, even during the pandemic, we're, we're hovering right at around 100 singers still. Talk to me a little bit about the, the, the singers themselves, the guys that are in the chorus, because I understand that's like a hundred, as you said, you're back up to about a hundred people. Like where are these people coming from? What kind of backgrounds do they come from? Do you ever find kind of unexpected people joining the chorus? You know, in, in some ways it is, uh, it is an incredibly diverse group of men. And in other ways it, it's, it, we have plenty of room for more uh, diversity. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the interesting thing. One of the things that I love about it is that it is intergenerational. The oldest person we have in the chorus is in the late 80s. The youngest is in the, the mid-teens, right? And that, that really provides a dynamic for, uh, uh, for male role models and, and, and things like that, which I think is really, really important. Um, the interesting thing about the group is that uh, it's geographically diverse. We have people uh, that, that are, are singing with us that uh, come from Delaware, Pennsylvania, down in Richmond. Okay. Uh, so I think that if we were to look at the Alexandria harmonizers and say, okay, how many of you actually live in the city of Alexandria? <laughs> it's going to be a, a surprisingly no, low number. And that's really, that's not something that I'm, I'm terribly proud of. I'm certainly proud of the singers who we have singing sure. from the city, but you know, that's, that is something that I think is an enormous opportunity for us, but it's also really cool to have a group that is so ge geographically diverse. Um, you know, having a, a large group like that uh, leads to very interesting dynamics on the risers. You know, uh, we have people from all walks of life, different uh, 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 political biases, different uh, uh, sexual orientations, all sorts of, of, of different things on the risers. But, you know, we stand next to each other on the risers. And the first question that we ask is, what part do you sing? Not what do you do for work, not what religion are you or, or, or you know, what party do you belong to, but, but what part do you sing? And that's as far as it goes for a long time. And, and we have had an incredible fellowship and brotherhood from the music that we create. And when you look at where these guys come from and what they do, it, it, it's, it's so uh, uh, 
vastly uh, broad. It's a wide spectrum of, of all sorts of different walks of life. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about some of the some of the opportunities you guys have had in terms of your performances. Some of some of what you mentioned up top. I, I have to ask about the White House. Uh, yeah, and and perhaps uh, maybe I know you said you performed there a number of times. Under which administrations did you perform? Uh, what was that experience like overall? So the, the harmonizers have performed under many, many administrations long before I was the director. Okay. Um, so the, the harmonizers have performed uh, quite a few times at the White House. I believe uh, under my direction, it's only been three times and it, they were all during the Obama administration. And, you know, the very first time performing at the White House, you know, for some of the other harmonizers, it was an, an, an old hat for them, but, but, for me, it was like, this is, holy crap, I can't believe this is actually <laughs> happening. They gave, they started off, you know, we, we were going to sing for one of the holiday parties and it was a private party that was being uh, put on by the Obamas. And they, they told us before we showed up, they said, the Obamas are hosting this party, but they're not going to be here. So don't get your hopes up. You're not going to meet them. And uh, we showed up early and they gave us a great private tour of the White House. They took down all of the velvet ropes. We walked in the rooms. We could see Christmas cards from Tom Cruise and, and also, you know, it was just so cool. And then we stood at the entrance of the White House and sang the same five Christmas songs over and over and over and over again as people were coming in. And it was fun, but after you do those same Christmas songs like five times in a row, even though you're at the White House, it's like, oh my God. Again. Yeah. And uh, we took a break and one of the docents came up to me and she said, uh, she came up and she said, the president would like to meet with you. And I was so starstruck. I, I didn't know how to, I said, the, the, the president of, of what? And she <laughs> said, the president of the United States. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, she said, please don't tell the chorus. Don't let the chorus know. Uh, uh, they're not supposed to know about this yet. And I said, I can't hold this back. I said, they're going to take one look at my face and know something's up. So I went back into the break room and the white house chef had made all of them Christmas cookies. It was the coolest thing on earth. And, uh, uh, so I went in and I said, guys, let's rehearse. Do you hear what I hear? And they were, you said we didn't have to sing that. We weren't going to sing it. And I said, let's just try it. So we sang it and they took us upstairs and they brought us into a room and they came in and they said, now, gentlemen, you were all about to meet the president and first lady of the United States. And shortly thereafter, uh, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama came walking in the room larger than life, spent time with every single individual, shook hands, talked a little bit with everyone, took a picture. Um, and then I, we finished and I left the White House and immediately called my parents. I was like, you won't believe what just happened. Uh, but it was a really, really cool experience. I mean, it sounds like it. It sounds totally surreal because you, I imagine that you're you're riding a high like right after that moment you're like this is oh, the cool this is the coolest God. thing that's ever happened and then you just like go back to work the next day <laughs> right right exactly right you know we we have i mentioned earlier but we've just had 
so many incredible experiences that that come to us. I mean, very often it's not something that we're seeking out. I think sure. having a 73-year-old reputation, uh, a lot of people just kind of come to us. Um, but, you know, those are all of the really prestigious things. There are so many other things that we do that I think really mean more to the chorus because they are giving back to the community. We produce an annual youth festival uh, that brings about a hundred local students together to learn about barbershop uh, and, and just kind of share in the love of singing. But more importantly, we don't just expect those students to come to us. We also take guest acapella ensembles and we go directly to the students and their music okay. educators and, and we, we uh, do workshops with them and we hit thousands of students in a day by doing things like that. We also perform every Veterans Day to a few hundred elementary, local elementary school kids to just kind of remind them of the sacrifice made by so many of our local heroes to protect their safety. Uh, we do a free singing Valentine's program to the local community to bring the gift of song to veterans and the elderly and the underserved communities mm -hmm. throughout Alexandria during a, a time that can be lonely for many. And, and one of the things that we've been most proud of lately is we have a growing partnership with the men's chorus at Alfred Street Baptist Church and have established a, an annual evening of choral fellowship for any men who love to sing. And that has not happened during the pandemic, but we can't wait to get back to that during the fall. So, you know, it's opportunities like that. We do about 20 to 30 of those sorts of things throughout the year um, that, that we provide to kind of enrich our community and help to better understand why we sing and how it has an impact on the lives of everyone involved. Do you want to know more about this year's hot real estate market? Coldwell Banker Realty's Alexandria office provides local experts with global connections to guide you home. Contact an expert today at www.coldwellbankerhomes.com. I mean, over the time that you've been with the Harmonizers, have you felt a shift in terms of how acapella barbershop is kind of received and perceived by especially young people? Because I feel like just like even just for myself, not knowing too much about it, just tangentially, I feel like pitch like pitch perfect and all these things have sort of reinvigorated people's awareness of acapella and brought it into pop culture and popular consciousness more and more. Is that something you've seen yourself kind of interacting with the community around music and singing? Absolutely. You know, uh, before I was uh, in Alexandria, I was teaching high school music and, you know, it's, it's impossible to get young boys involved in singing. It's a, yeah. not a, a cool thing to do, but I tell you today, Young men are are flocking to acapella singing, to barbershop singing, to singing in general, and I think it's thanks to you know uh, shows like NBC's The Sing Off and and movies like Pitch Perfect, and you know singing has become a cool thing to do again. Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned when when I joined the Harmonizers, I was the youngest person in the room at 25, and that was by a good margin. Now there are, are plenty of people in the harmonizers that are well younger than me. And, and 
you know, we, it, it, when we weren't in a pandemic, it was, it, you know, it was a rare night when we didn't have a number of guests attending our rehearsal of varying ages. So it's great to see young people involved, but I think that there are so many incredible benefits to an ensemble that is intergenerational. Sure. So I think that that's a really cool part of it. Definitely. I also, I, I mean, I also want to talk about sort of, because you, you, your organization has, as you mentioned, you've traveled the globe performing. You sure. mentioned Edinburgh. There, I mean, there are many other places that you've gone to perform. Is acapella perceived differently and received differently depending on where you perform, the U.S., Scotland, other parts of Europe, elsewhere? Do you find that it's that audiences kind of respond to it differently depending on where you're performing? You know, we we I mentioned the the stereotype of barbershop earlier, you know, that is definitely a stereotype anywhere you go in the country. But when you go outside of the country, they don't know what barbershop harmony means. They Mm. will typically ask, you you mean like the haircut? You do haircutting songs? (laughs) Like they don't quite understand. Um, The the first time the harmonizers traveled outside of North America was, uh, boy, it might have been 2009 or 2010. We went to Beijing, China. Oh, wow. And um, we learned a Chinese folk song in the barbershop style. And it was very interesting. We worked very hard in our Chinese. And and when we got there, we sang the song uh, for them. It was a folk song called Rainbow Sister. That's the English title, of course. Um, And we sang it for them. We were so proud that we were we learned something (laughs) in Chinese and that we sang it for them. And a, a little Chinese woman came up to me after the performance, after we sang the song, and she says, we have a song just like that in Chinese. So we clearly <laughs> did not do a good job of, of singing Chinese. Uh, uh, but in that performance, we, uh, we performed at, at the concert hall in the Forbidden City. And um, I, I remember we performed this great opener, an, an Edward Ellisque song called Great Day. And it has this great ending, lots of choreography. And we finished the song and the audience went. So the chorus kind of dug their heels in and they said, all right, if they didn't like that, then we're going to give them something. And they kept working so hard to bring them something even better. And after every song, golf claps from the audience. And we thought, they hated us. They don't like, they don't know how to appreciate acapella harmony. They hated us. We went back, we changed into our street clothes and we were slumping, you know, kind of walking out after the, the, uh, uh, the concert was done. And there was hundreds of people in the lobby waiting for autographs from all of us, cheering, clutching, grabbing at us, wanting to buy wow. CDs. What? And I said, I don't believe it. I went to a translator and I said, I thought that they hated us. I thought that they didn't like acapella harmony here. And they said, no, actually, before the concert started, someone went out and told the entire audience that these are very, very special guests from the U.S. and everyone has to be very, very respectful. So they were just being very respectful. But after the concert, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. So, you know, it's very, very interesting, the the power of music. And I think that acapella harmony 
in, in all of its different forms and genres is something that's, that's appreciated anywhere in the world. Definitely. I mean, everybody, every culture, every country has its own version of choral music or, or right. purely vocal music. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I, I do want to talk about sort of what the last year has been like, or I guess at this point, more than a year has been like for, mm-hmm. for the harmonizers. You mentioned a few times some of the things you haven't been able to do during the pandemic. How did you guys adapt kind of early on when, when things hit? Obviously, everything was shut down. Everybody's been impacted. But uh, how were how were the harmonizers specifically kind of impacted by the pandemic? You know, uh, we were very fortunate um, as a as a an organization that's been around for over seventy years. We really have not evolved. We've not had anything that that forced us to evolve technologically and in a num- number of other ways. So. It was very interesting that just before the pandemic and maybe late 2019, we came together and we said, hey, we kind of have to get with the times. We have to embrace technology. We have to record more. And if we have members that are driving from so far away, we should stream our rehearsals and we should, you know, do all of these sorts of things. So we started doing that in late 2019, early 2000. Um, and I think that that in, in making those changes, it was a blessing in disguise. We were more prepared for the pandemic than I think the average chorus because of those things that we were doing to just kind of get with the times. Um, that said, our identity as a performance ensemble, performance ensemble meaning we, we stand on stage and sing uh, to you. You sit in the audience and, and applaud for us. That identity that we've relied on for decades was stripped away from us uh, a year and a half ago. And, you know, it still doesn't really exist at the moment. And it's caused many singing communities and, and, and singers to feel hopeless and wallow around in survival mode. So instead of just waiting around for that performance ensemble identity to be relevant again, I think that there was an enormous opportunity for us to pivot that identity, to be viewed not only as a performance ensemble, but to be viewed as a community asset. You know, we have always specialized in the benefits of singing together in harmony. And when we're at our very best, we know it can improve relationships, build understanding and support community but we've never really been pressed to articulate it outside of our own singers. So this was an opportunity for us to consider who in our community is really in need of those benefits. And during the pandemic, the answer was everyone is in need of those benefits. They just don't know about it. So our job was to remind the community that we exist as an asset that they can rely on and interact with. And in doing so, we've, surprisingly had a number of people join us uh, as, as singers during the pandemic. And we did a, a, a virtual show that uh, benefited a local charity that supports uh, veterans and their families. Um, so we found ways to invest and dig deeper in the community during a time when we couldn't do the things that we've always been able to do. Yeah. It's, it's also unfortunate because as you mentioned, your your the very thing that you guys do which is sing in front of people with lots of people on stage suddenly became 
like a super spreader, basically. Exactly. It's, right. it's weaponized, basically. Right. Yeah. That must, I mean, how did you sort of square that with virtual technology? Did you, because you have a hundred members. I assume when you were doing virtual concerts, it wasn't a hundred members performing virtually. No, it wasn't. You know, we, we, you know, typically on a, on a, we rehearse Tuesday nights and we've been religious in our, our Tuesday night rehearsals throughout the pandemic. I don't know that we've missed one outside of maybe the Tuesday between Christmas and New Year's. Um, uh, but we get 60 to 70 attendees on, on those Zoom calls. So I think that there are people who are not necessarily fulfilled by it. There may be people who are not technologically savvy, but uh, all of those people that have not been attending, we've stayed very closely in touch with to make sure that they're doing okay. They're not, uh, they're not going anywhere after the pandemic is over. So, you know, we've stayed very close in touch uh, throughout the pandemic with the members that have been joining us virtually, as well as those that, that haven't. And, you know, we have uh, uh, unfortunately lost uh, a surprising number of chorus members during the pandemic. I don't mean to oh, wow. membership in the organization. I mean, COVID-19, cancer, other unfortunate yeah. circumstances. And, you know, while that experience has been devastating and incredibly unfortunate, I really believe that everything we've experienced throughout this pandemic has value. And it's it's going to hold a special place in the journey of, of everyone who embraces this, this period that we've, we're, we're all working through. So, you know, like it or not, life has a, a funny way of continuing regardless of a pandemic and other crazy distractions. And, and I found that it offers us glimmers of hope and gratitude uh, for those who are really paying close attention, gratitude that we live in a technologically advanced time where we can stay connected yeah. in a safe and physically distanced way for people who are super spreaders and really the hope for the opportunity to gather again, uh, which we are looking forward to gathering in, in June. We're going to start back up to in-person rehearsals in June. And, you know, that ability for us to create meaningful art together again is a simple action that I think many of us probably took for granted before the pandemic. And when we can finally come together, together to sing again, I think it is going to be more fulfilling than ever before. It's probably going to be very emotional too for all of these people, sure. all of these people in your organization to finally be able to do what you guys ha have been doing or want have wanted to be doing for the last year and a half. But you know, while, while we haven't been able to do the things the way that we've always done them, the most important thing was for us to find ways to do the things that we've never been able to do before. Sure. Yeah. So I think that when the pandemic is over, there might not be too many positive things to say about it, but I really believe that as time goes by, we are going to remember the creativity that we used during this time and the technology that we embraced. And I think that choral ensembles are going to look at this pandemic eventually as a renaissance for organizations like the Harmonizers that haven't evolved for decades until now. So kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, it's been incredibly painful and unfortunate in so many ways. But I think our, our, our future, the future of the choral arts is, is bright and we will eventually realize that we're, we're all better off for it. The, I think crisis 
breeds creativity what is necessity is the mother of invention uh, sure. um and i think as you've as you've articulated i think you've had to be creative in terms of finding new ways to do what you you guys want to do and love to do um but i also think that the pandemic for everyone has sort of forced us to grapple with like who we like the the foundational aspects of our of our identity in a lot of ways. It's probably forced you guys to kind of articulate who are we as an organization if we can't do what we've traditionally done. Right, not not only the grand scheme of who are we, but we took yeah. time to actually learn more about each other, right? Yeah. And I, I really do think we're gonna come back stronger than we've ever been because we're gonna know each other better. You know, we, we, we would end, we still do, we end every virtual rehearsal with what we call an elective. It's just a, a 30 minute opportunity for someone in the chorus to talk about something. It doesn't have to be musical related. We had someone who talked about the, the correct order to watch all of the Star Wars. <laughs> right? What does that have to do with music? It has nothing to do with music, right? But I'll tell you, we learned so much more about that harmonizer. And I think that when we finally come together, we're gonna be not only better off uh, in, in our relationships with each other, but the organization as a whole is going to be a much stronger organization. We end each and every episode sort of connecting one one conversation to the next by posing a question to the current guest that was asked by the last guest without knowing who they were. And, and your question, that. yeah, your question is posed by uh, Brandon Bird, who's the owner, operator of uh, Goodies Frozen Custard, the latest sort of... Uh, frozen treat spot in old town which i believe is opening soon if i'm not if i'm not mistaken um his question to you was what is your usp and and brandon is very brandon is very entrepreneurial very kind of passionate about the work he does for him usp is unique selling proposition and that way what defines you or makes you unique and i'm sure you've sort of articulated a lot of it in terms of your answers here but what is your usp do you think um, you know, I, I love I love the way that you end these podcasts, and I love this question. Um, we talked a lot about acapella singing, but but the the type of acapella singing that we specialize in, barbershop harmony, is a really unique style of singing. And what it does is it encourages everyone to express themselves in a way that's informed by their own unique perspectives and backgrounds and experiences. And I think it's important for everyone to remember that singing is a resource that they can rely on and the harmonizers can provide that essential social connection that's necessary to engage with others and, and benefit from the joy of singing. So, you know, most people believe that what we do as singers is just fringe entertainment, mm. but singing together, there's singing, right, is singing karaoke, singing in the shower or car, right? That has significant uh, value. You know, singing alone has, has wonderful health benefits, but when you sing together, not to compete in a contest or, or anything else, but when you simply harmonize with other people, you create something that is much more than the sum of the parts. And for us, musical excellence is at the heart of it, but even if a choir isn't the greatest in the world, the fact that they're meeting together has social communal value. And any group of people pouring their hearts and souls out in harmony, I think is an emblem of what we need more of in this world. 
We just need to focus it outside of our little barbershop bubble and let it overflow into the, the, the community of Alexandria. You know, everyone is tired of hearing about all of the awful things going on lately, but for some reason you never hear that it happened by someone who just left their chorus rehearsal. So I, I think that that would probably probably be my, my USP. That's great. Um, Joe, what question do you have for the next guest without knowing who they are? So I thought about this a little bit, and I, I think that it's a simple question that I, uh, it all depends on who the person is, but the question would be, when was the last time you sang? I love that. I mean, I love that. Some of the best and questions are the simplest. Usually the, the answer is, is, oh, I, you know, I don't sing, but I think that that's, that's one of the things that we have to realize that, that singing is something that exists as a, as something that doesn't have to be connected to quality. And, 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 you know, as a former music educator, I've found so many people that, that say, I stopped singing when I was eight because my music teacher told me that I couldn't sing. Right. And, and I think that we see that throughout uh, uh, the country. And I think that that's one of the things that, that I'd, I'd love to, to learn from others. And I, and I often ask other people, when was the last time you sang? So that, I think that would be my question. It's perfect. Uh, thank you for your question, Joe. And, and thank you for, for joining us on this podcast. We really appreciated hearing about everything that you guys are doing. I think, especially now, I think everybody could, could afford to sing a little bit more. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Cody. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And thank you, Alexandra. Take it easy.